0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 29th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. All right, good morning, church family. As you are getting settled, as we continue our worship this morning in God's Word, let me ask you a couple of questions. First is simply this. If you were to take a guess, what action do you think is most commonly associated with Jesus in the Gospels? What action, and let me say this, what action apart from speaking, what action apart from Jesus talking, do you think is most associated with him in the Gospels? And as you're thinking about that, let me ask you this. What emotion do you think is most associated with Jesus? in the Gospels. What action and what emotion do you think the Gospel writers most attribute to Jesus? I'll give you a hint. They're both in the verses that Tim read for us this morning. They're both also in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus and his disciples are traveling along the way and they intersect with a funeral procession, a, a widow from the area of Nain whose son has died. And Luke chapter seven, verse 13 says, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. They're both also in Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus landed, having crossed the sea. And Matthew says he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them. Did you catch the similarities? What action and and what emotion are are most commonly attributed to Jesus? Jesus. It's his looking and his compassion. No one has done more work on this than Paul Miller. Paul Miller says, in fact, around 40 different times in the Gospels, the writers record Jesus looking at people or telling others to look at something. And in no less than 10 of those 40 occasions, Jesus' looking is followed by Jesus' compassion. In fact, in some of his most famous parables, his most famous teachings, like the Good Samaritan or the parable of the prodigal son, there is someone looking, someone seeing, and someone showing compassion. I don't know if you've ever realized it, friends, but the Gospels, the records of Jesus' life and ministry, they are full of people like you being seen and being loved by Jesus. And so if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we, we have to recognize that as our current cultural crisis continues, and, and I don't just mean continues into week three, but when we start thinking about this thing stretching out to week seven, week eight, and week nine, the supply and demand ratios of being seen by others and experiencing compassion from others, are probably going to mirror the current ratios for things like face masks and Lysol and ventilators. So church family, this crisis that we are in right now as a culture, it actually presents us with an opportunity. An opportunity for you and I to Jesus more clearly in the midst of our crisis. And as we see him more clearly in the midst of this, you and I are going to be able to better enjoy the grace and the compassion of God that comes from knowing that we've been seen by him. And as we live in that grace and compassion, you and I can take the opportunities that God gives to see other people the way that Jesus sees them and Reflect to them the compassion that he has shown us. Over the next several weeks, compassion as the world knows it is going to be in short supply. But for those who are continuing to see and enjoy Jesus, the compassion that we know from him, the grace we live in from him you and I can know that being able to see and show that compassion to others in the midst of this crisis is an ever-renewable resource. We have a tremendous opportunity before us, and I I hope we see that this morning in God's word. So let me pray for us as we get ready to jump in. Father, we ask this morning that you would simply just give us new eyes. We need new eyes to see people the way that you see people. Lord, this can only happen by a work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, and so we ask this morning that you would do that very thing in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen. The verses that Tim read for us in Matthew chapter 9, they they really serve as a bridge, a, a transition point to what's happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. and In fact, verse 35 sums it up pretty well. Verse 35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And in chapters 8 and chapter 9, up to this point, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's traveling, he's preaching the gospel, he's healing the sick, his ministry is expanding. And then in chapter 10, if you just jump a couple of verses to chapter 10, Jesus then sends his apostles, his disciples at this point out to do the very things that he's done, to go into the towns and into the cities, to continue to preach the good news of God's kingdom and, and with the authority that he gives them to heal those who are sick. It's a tremendous picture of, of Jesus even now sending out his church, But this transition from Jesus teaching and healing to Jesus also sending out his disciples, it swings on the verses that Tim read. And in these verses, Jesus is doing something. He's modeling something for his disciple. He's modeling something for us that's going to impact the fruitfulness of this ministry. Listen to what it says, verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion. Now, if you're anything like me, and I think you probably are, you enjoy a good game of people watching. Now, we can't do much of it these days in the age of isolation, but as soon as we can all get back out to Short Pump, out in the mall in the good weather, sit down on a bench and watch all the people around, as soon as we can get back to a good sporting event or music event in a crowd of people and begin to take in everyone we see, as soon as we can get back together on a Sunday morning like this and enjoy the, the spectacle of people, You and I are going to begin to see people again, and we're going to go back to people watching. And when we do, let me ask you what what is it that you see? If you're honest, you are usually looking at people through a set of filters that helps you determine in one way or another whether or not you'd like to hang out with that person. It might be based on the clothes that they're wearing, it might be based on the car you see them driving. It might be based on how loud they are in their communication, uh, if their hands are flying everywhere. There's all manner of things that you and I look at when we see people, when we're people watching, that in our minds and in our hearts determine whether or not we'd actually like to be around that person. I mean, if we're honest, people watching is the strangest and most silent form of character assassination that we know. But here, Jesus specifically looks and he sees the crowds And he sees something that I don't often notice. He sees people who are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, shepherding is one of the most dominant images in the Bible. It was one of the most dominant cultural realities in the days of Jesus' time, And for a sheep to find itself harassed meant that it was suffering the torment of a particular type of fly that would often make its home in the nostrils of the sheep and begin to lay eggs in the nostrils of the sheep. It would be so harassing to the sheep that they they couldn't solve it, couldn't get any way to fix it, and they would beat their heads against a rock or a tree or whatever was near them to try to get rid of those flies. They were constantly being harassed by these things. And for a sheep to, to find itself not just harassed, but helpless, helpless literally means being thrown down. You'll often see in the Bible, in the Psalms, and in other places, the psalmist or the writer is talking about being cast down. That's what being helpless as a sheep means. It means they found themselves in a situation where they've fallen over on their side or on their back. Maybe their wool has gotten too heavy. Maybe it's gotten wet. But when a sheep falls down on its side and gets itself on its back, it can't write itself back up. And if a sheep can't get back up to its feet, its circulation isn't able to function the way it's supposed to, and all manner of unhealthy gases build up in the sheep and it's going to die. That's what it means, that's what happens. And so when Jesus looks at the crowds, he uses this metaphor for people whose souls are harassed, who are experiencing the crises of heart that they don't have answers or solutions to, The crises of security, the crises of identity, the crises of flourishing, the crises of heart that keep us awake at night. Their hearts and their souls are harassed with things they don't have answers for or solutions to. And not just that, they're helpless. In this situation, they're cast down, they're thrown down, they can't fix it. And there's not a good ending in sight. He said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Do you know what a sheep without a shepherd is? It's prey. It's actually dinner for another animal. There are no wild sheep anywhere in the world wandering around because sheep can't be alone. They have to be taken care of. You see, a good shepherd would have prepared a particular ointment that he would have put on the nose and inside the nostrils of the sheep, maybe even covered the wool or the body of the sheep so that he wouldn't suffer the harassment of these flies, the torment of these flies, and he would have always been alert to his sheep and their whereabouts so that if one was missing, if one was cast down or or thrown down or helpless, he would be able to pick it back up. Harassed and helpless is what Jesus saw because the leaders of the day, the shepherds of the day, the religious leaders weren't doing their job. And when Jesus looks out on the crowd and he actually looks at them and he sees them, what he sees are those who are harassed in heart. Helpless, and he has compassion on them. He didn't come down on them for being harassed and helpless in soul. And Matthew doesn't say it, but if these disciples that were with Jesus are anything like me, and I I have good reason to believe we are a lot alike because I know the rest of the story, he doesn't tell us specifically. But if I had to guess, I would would say that Jesus' disciples who were with him at this time didn't look out on that crowd and see the same thing that Jesus saw. I don't think they saw the people the same way that Jesus did. Friends, when you look at people, what do you notice? Especially in these days where we're going to be in confinement with people for a period of time that we normally wouldn't have to deal with them. When you look at the person sitting next to you this morning, what do you see? Do you and I see the people that God puts in our life the way that Jesus sees them? Here in Matthew chapter 9, when he looked, he had compassion because he saw their restless and their helpless heart. He saw their most pressing spiritual need to know and to live in the grace and the compassion of the good shepherd. Now, given the nature of our particular crisis, I actually want us to consider what we just read in Matthew chapter 9, and I want us to read another passage in Mark chapter 8. I want us to consider these two alongside each other. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. It's a similar situation, but it's not the exact one. So listen to what Mark says. Mark says that during those days, another large crowd gathered. And since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. And so here we are in another situation of Jesus and his disciples and and Jesus looks out and he sees. He sees the people who are in front of him and, and what? He has compassion. Now why does he have compassion on them in this scenario? Well, Mark says it's because they've been with him for three days. Some of them have come a long way to be with him and they don't have anything to eat. So hungry and so weary are they that when Jesus sees them and considers them, he realizes that he can't just send them home because they might not have the strength to be able to make it. So Jesus looks and he sees them and he's moved to compassion. Why? Because of their very real physical need a need he was all too familiar with, don't forget. Jesus knew the pain of hunger. Jesus knew the weariness of not having something to eat. He went 40 days without food in the wilderness before he began his ministry. He was familiar with what they were feeling. But there's an important detail that I don't want you to miss and I want you to consider here in this particular story. Mark chapter 8 is happening in a region outside of Jerusalem. It's in an area called the Decapolis. It's a Gentile territory. So the crowd that Jesus is looking at in Mark chapter 8 is very different from the crowd he looked at in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, he looked at a crowd that was predominantly Israelites, God's people. Here in Mark chapter 8, he looks out on a crowd that's predominantly Gentile. And an Israelite would really never, ever have any personal concern with the well-being of a Gentile and vice versa. But here Jesus looks out on the crowds. He sees them and he has compassion for them. He doesn't see them as enemies. As one writer said, when Jesus looked, he realized that it's hard to see the needs of people that you think of as enemies, He looks and he sees men and women and children created in the image and likeness of God. And as C.S. Lewis would later write, he takes them seriously. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Lewis wrote that there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But, It is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This doesn't mean that we are not to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of the kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy. No superiority. No presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence, which is just a parody of love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Jesus looks out on the crowd and he takes them seriously. He sees them and he has compassion for them. In Matthew chapter 9, he sees the most pressing spiritual need of the people. In Mark chapter 8, he sees the most pressing physical need that they're experiencing. And what we begin to learn when we watch how Jesus sees and responds to people is that true compassion always looks and sees both, the spiritual and the physical. And if you and I are going to take seriously the opportunity given to us during this crisis to enjoy and reflect the compassion of Jesus, then we're going to have to come to terms with what in our hearts keeps us from being able to actually see people, what keeps us from being able to see people and reflect the compassion of Jesus to them? In his book, Church Planter, Darren Patrick was writing about the way the church is called by God to love those where they are sent. And, and he mentioned some things that get in the way of our ability to love people. And I think they're very similar to the things that get in the way of our hearts to be able to see and show compassion to people. Listen to what he said. Is it one of the things that, that keeps us, that gets in the way of? of being able to allow us to love, and here I would say see and show compassion to people, is is our own busyness. Our own busyness. Busyness is just the reflection of a heart that's preoccupied with itself, with the things it wants to do, it wants to accomplish, the expectations that it's taken on itself, its agenda, and all the energy is spent trying to accomplish these things and do these things. And don't make the mistake of thinking in an age of social isolation when we're not going about to the same places that we're accustomed to, the schedules are different, that we're any less busy. No, everybody is filling up our inboxes and emails with all the things that we're supposed to do if we're going to be good friends and good neighbors and good parents during these times. All the crafts we've got to do with our kids, all the museums we've got to see online, all the performances we've got to watch, all the things we're supposed to do to fill all the time. Don't think you're going to be any less busy. But busyness can get in the way of being able to actually see, to look and to see the people that God puts in front of us and then reflect something of his compassion towards them. But busyness has a, has a sibling. The sibling to busyness is hurriedness. They're not the same thing. Hurriedness is actually the state of mind, the state of heart, the state of soul that comes with being busy, chasing down all these things that we think we have to go and do. Our hearts and our souls get hurried. Patrick actually said in his book that hurriedness is like a strong wind that blows on the waters of your heart. If the waves are too high, you forget about others and focus on your own survival, making love, or I would say here, compassion towards others impossible. Anyone know the hurriedness of heart, even in the midst of isolation like this? Richard Exley was a, a pastor who wrote about the challenges that face a heart in the life of ministry. And in one of his books, he shared a journal entry that I think captures this idea of weariness well and hurriedness well. He wrote this in one of his journals I'm tired, Lord. I'm bone-weary from the inside out. I'm tired of a constantly cluttered desk and an overcrowded calendar. I'm tired of problems I can't solve, hurts I can't heal. I'm tired of deadlines and decisions, duties done without pleasure. I can't remember the last time I walked barefoot outside or took time to smell the air after the rain. I can't recall the last time I smelled coffee and just stopped to enjoy it. I want to feel. I want to laugh. I want to cry. I want to live life to the fullest. I want love and I want to be loved. Do you hear me? I want to love. I want to see people. I want to love, I want to reflect the compassion of Jesus. I want to enjoy knowing that I'm seen by him and live in the grace of his compassion. But hurriedness, it gets in the way. But it's not just busyness and hurriedness that get in the way. Self-righteousness often rears its ugly head. Seeing people and showing compassion to them is hard when We see some people as less than ourselves. And we see ourselves as less than sinners before a holy God. I mean, if there's anything that I have noticed that I'm most upset about in in the last week or two in the conversations that are being had, mostly online between churches and between people who fill their seats, is the air of self-righteous judgment that has come as people have had to respond to the changes of this crisis. I mean, there are churches who, by the grace of God, have made decisions years ago to to move into this digital world in ways that other churches hadn't. And so as some churches are trying to figure out how to flatten the digital learning curve to be able to engage people in a day like this, I'm hearing in emails, I'm getting emails, I'm part of email chains where some pastors from churches who were a little further ahead are looking back at all these churches who had decided not to go that route earlier and going, see, I told you so. I told you you'd end up doing this. Snarky, self-righteous responses. Even people who fill the churches normally when we're able to gather. Many who previously had made decisions to figure out how to transition some of their work to home and and some who have made decisions on on being able to school their children at home are now responding to others who are trying to figure out how to do this, how to flatten that curve for learning that figuring out how to make transitions to working from home when they've never done it before, how to to school their kids, multiple kids they've never had to do before. And what we're hearing is, well, welcome to my world. Having forgotten what that was like when you made those transitions and realizing that you might have something to offer, we fail in our self-righteousness to see each other. Maybe even remember what that was like in those moments for us and reflect something of the compassion of Christ to each other in those moments. Self-righteousness will always get in the way of you and I being able to see people the way that Jesus does and reflect something of his compassion to them, but it's not just self-righteousness. There's another. There's another one we hear a lot about these days, and that's self-protection. Self-protection. Do you know that the word compassion literally means being with someone in their passion, and passion in that Latin sense would have meant pain too. It's being with someone in their passion, with someone in their pain. But when we burn up all of our energy trying to avoid other people's pain, trying to avoid other people's passion, self-protection gets in the way and we're not able to see them and actually reflects something of Jesus' compassion to them. When we work so hard to avoid people's pain, avoid people's messes, we, we can't show them the kind of compassion that we have experienced from Jesus. We're so ingrained to fixate on ourselves, but the compassion of Jesus starts by looking and seeing other people considering them, taking them seriously, and then loving them as we love ourselves. I mean, isn't that what we want from each other? Yet these things get in the way and we find it so hard to actually do. And everything around us tells us we just need to fix our eyes back on ourselves. We just need to love ourselves more. But the reality of it is Jesus understood this. You and I don't need to figure out how to love ourselves anymore. We love ourselves plenty already. I mean, just think, what if Jesus had treasured his self-protection the way that you and I do? Where would that leave us? Scott Sauls is a pastor in Nashville and, and he wrote in one of his books, we are able to see the upside of messy only because Jesus went into the mess first in order to heal it. He left heaven for a womb, a stable, a wilderness, and a cross so that the world would be saved through him. We're able to love, or I would say show compassion and pursue the healing of messy people, to see them and show them the compassion of Jesus only because Jesus did it first, befriending tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes and making them his friends and many of them his apostles. You see, friends, as you and I come face to face with Jesus in these texts, as we see Jesus here, we need to see first in the way that Jesus sees and shows compassion to people that God is showing us how he loves us. Before God is showing us anything that we have to do, these texts are showing us how God loves us, what he's done. Don't read this and don't hear this and think this is about what you and I now have to go and do. First, it's about what God has already done, how he has seen us and loved us. You see, the stories of Jesus looking and showing compassion to people is just a reflection of God the Father's interaction with his people throughout all of history. As one scholar said, when we watch Jesus, we're watching God love us. That's what Paul would later reflect in Romans 5 when he would say God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He looked and he saw you helpless and harassed and he showed compassion. And his compassion didn't involve him overlooking your sin. His compassion didn't involve him sweeping your mess under the rug, no. His compassion involved him sending his only son who would take on human form, not protecting himself from the mess of our sin, but rather taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our sin, dying the death that we deserve to die for our sin. That is the compassion of God who looks and sees us Friends, it's only as you and I continue to see Jesus and, and live in the joy of, of being seen by Jesus, in our own hearts, in our own hearts delight in the fact that we are seen and known and loved by Jesus, living in the depth of his grace and compassion, it's only then that you and I are going to be able to look, to see, to take the people around us seriously, and be able to reflect to them something of the compassion that God has shown us in Christ. And even when we consider that, God hasn't left us to our own resources to do it. God would enter humanity again, even after Jesus went to sit at the right hand of the Father. This time, God would enter humanity by his spirit in dwelling in his people. The Holy Spirit of God brings the very person of Jesus into our lives. Jesus within us by His Spirit helps us to see. And then love helps us to see and to show the same kind of compassion to others that we've received from Him. Friends, enjoying the grace and compassion of God towards us in Jesus is what continually begins to renew and empower us to look and to show the same compassion to others. And here's the thing. In the coming weeks, it's going to be needed. It's going to be needed. The people that you live with, they're going to need it. Your neighbors, they're going to need it. That's why in Matthew chapter nine, as Jesus would say to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. The opportunity is present, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There's plenty of need. The helpless and the harassed in heart, the hungry and the weary in body, there's plenty of need. Jesus didn't say, ask, ask me to show you more need. No, he said to pray and to ask God to help us to see like he sees in order to reflect his compassion to a harassed and helpless and hungry world. There's going to be no shortage of need all around us, but by his grace and through his spirit, there need not be any shortage of compassion in his people. So pray, pray earnestly, Jesus says, that self-righteousness and busyness and hurriedness and and self-protection won't get the last word in this crisis. Church family, there's no shortage of people in your life, in your neighborhood, who are ready to be seen and ready to be loved. So let's pray earnestly that God would send out unhurried and humble workers whose hearts are captivated by his compassion and who are willing to look, to see, and to show that same compassion to others. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, you have put us at an unprecedented time in our lives. And Lord, without you, without the anchoring of your spirit and your grace in our hearts, we could feel so lost, floundering around for what the purpose is. Where are we? What are we doing? What's expected? But God, you've seen us and our hurriedness and busyness and harassment you've seen our hearts and you have loved us through the kindness of your son and so we ask that you would give us eyes now to see not only this crisis and this time in which we live but to see the people that you have put in our path during this time the way that you see them we need you to give us eyes to see the way that you see that we might reflect something of your love and your compassion to those that are around us. It's an opportunity that you've given us, a harvest that you've laid before us. We don't want to waste it. Lord, give us what we need by your spirit to enjoy the grace and compassion of being seen by you so that we can reflect something of that grace and compassion to a watching and hurried and harassed and helpless world. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you prepare this morning to wrap up your time in worship, let me me give you this benediction for you to receive. Friends, may God be your exceeding joy. May Jesus continue to be your sure and steadfast hope. May the Holy Spirit continue to be your unfailing comforter in all that you do until Jesus returns. Amen. I love you, and we'll see you later this week.